Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, Jesus and His People. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 15, verses 18 to 21, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Enduring Hatred. On the night before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus had some radical things to say to his disciples. You see, Jesus could have told his disciples that, look, I'm about to be crucified. It's going to be tough, but don't worry. This is going to last only three days. Then I'm going to rise. Then the dark night's going to be over. Just hang in tight for three days and, you know, we'll be just fine. Now, that would have made Jesus sound like the very worst of the word faith teachers or it would have made him sound like a politician. You know, if you just absorb the pain for a short period of time, well, then the stock market's going to rebound and we're all going to sing, happy days are here again. I think what I'm trying to say is that most people don't absorb well the idea that difficult days are going to stretch on for years, perhaps even to the end of their earthly life. And almost no one says that to others. Instead, we want to give people the impression that if we want to get followers, or even if we want to keep followers that we already have, that the good days are just around the corner. But that would have given the wrong idea. We know that when the apostles began to preach, they were immediately opposed. The first prison sentence came as recorded in Acts chapter 4. Shortly after, Peter and John had healed a man at the beautiful gate who was begging in the temple. And by the time we get to Acts 7, Stephen, a member of the new church of Jesus, is stoned to death in the streets of Jerusalem. And by the next chapter, in Acts chapter 8, a general persecution rises against the church and the apostles are forced to leave Jerusalem. And then not long after that, we meet Saul of Tarsus, who prior to his dramatic conversion was commissioned by the chief priest to travel to Syria and arrest any followers of the way that he could find. And by Acts chapter 12, King Herod Agrippa arrested James, one of the apostles of our Lord, one of the sons of Zebedee, the brother of the apostle John, and he had him killed with a sword. Thus came the very first martyrdom among the apostolic band. And then Saul of Tarsus, who himself became, well, the apostle Paul, would later tell the Corinthian Christians that his hardships had become so great and that his suffering had become so severe that at one point in time, he had actually despaired of life itself. That is, he feared he just couldn't go on. In the end, all of the apostles, with the exception of John, died a martyr's death. Paul would be beheaded. Peter would be crucified. Thomas was stabbed with spears of four soldiers in India. Matthew seems to have been stabbed to death in Ethiopia. On and on, one horrible death after another, until the apostolic band is all gone, John alone is left. And if Jesus would have said, I'm going to be crucified, then rise in three days, and with that, the dark days will be over, you can have your best life now, well, he would have been deceiving his disciples. And as we will see today, he says nothing of the kind. And for us who read what Jesus says in this passage at the end of John 15, we're going to have to ask ourselves what the experience of the apostles means to us. That is, what are we to expect? Do we expect the same treatment? And furthermore, if Jesus makes no promise that we will have a life of pleasure and ease, why would we continue to follow him? I know many will respond, but, you know, there is the promise of heaven. And of course, that's right. That's exactly right. But that might be too far away for some of us. Let me suggest one example. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer was the German pastor who stood against the Nazi attempt to take over the church. Hitler had wanted a fully Nazified German church. Indeed, as Erwin Lutzer shows us in his book on the Nazi church, he entitled it Hitler's Cross. You know, there was a time when Germans were actually baptizing their children, not under the sign of the cross, but under the sign of the swastika. Hitler had tried to make the church into a Nazi church. Back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. While many fellow pastors urged that peace ought to be sought with Hitler, Bonhoeffer called for a radical proclamation of Jesus against the world powers. He would never make peace with Hitler. In his famous sermon very early on in Hitler's reign, Bonhoeffer had said, no man deserves to be called Fuhrer but Christ alone. But what would happen to people who dared to take that kind of a stance against Hitler? I mean, how could the church win against him? And to that, Bonhoeffer had an answer. He proclaimed, when Christ bids a man to follow him, he bids him to come and die. He meant following Christ in his day meant certain death. And that meant that we must all be willing to go the way of the cross in the hope of a better resurrection. So what actually became of Bonhoeffer? Well, as the Allied guns were being heard in Berlin, that is, as the days of the Nazi reign were but days from ending, And just before Hitler committed suicide, an order had come from the Nazis, kill Bonhoeffer. And with the guns of the liberating Allied army heard in the background, it was April 9, 1945, Bonhoeffer was hanged, and you have to imagine the cruelty of it, with the use of a piano wire in the Flossenburg concentration camp. And then within days, the Americans liberated that prison. But they had come too late for Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer's last words were, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. And so he died with the hope of the resurrection. He believed his call was to be crucified with Christ. But Bonhoeffer's words have been heard. When Christ bids a man to follow him, he bids him to come and die. But there's more of a message. Bonhoeffer believed that the message of the cross must be heard in the corridors of world power regardless of consequences. Christ must be proclaimed to all the world. Now, before I move on, let me also admit that Bonhoeffer did have some theological problems, but that's not the subject of this message. I refer, if you want to study this remarkable man, to read Eric Metaxas' book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He does an excellent treatment of, you know, this remarkable follower of Jesus. And Bonhoeffer's words that no man deserves to be called Fuhrer except Jesus Christ alone, those words do sound so much like the message of the apostles that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. You see, in the Roman world, the Romans said that Caesar was Lord. Indeed, good citizens of the Roman Empire were told that that they could worship any god or goddess they liked or pursue any religious ideal. Rome was a place of tolerance but they needed to add something to all religious loyalty. They needed to pour out libations to Caesar and then to proclaim Caesar as Lord. And that Christians could not do. They would honor the emperor and they would seek to submit to him, but they would not call him Lord. Jesus Christ alone is Lord. And they would have agreed with the Dutch prime minister, Abraham Kuyper, who once famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. You see, there are voices today that would want to keep the message of the cross safely tucked away in church where it will not be as offensive as if it is loudly proclaimed in the world. 
And if we do that, we won't suffer persecution. To which George MacLeod responded in the following poem. He said, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. I'm recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on a town garbage heap at the crossroad of politics so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek, and at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble, because that is where he died, and that is what he died about, and that is where Christ's men ought to be and what the church people ought to be about. See, I'm sharing a message today that's challenging, and it, and it may be offensive to some, but it is the way of Jesus. Jesus called his followers to bring his message to the world, not just to the confines of the church, and that would create a conflict, and his followers would have to endure hatred. Jesus called his disciples to walk into the heart of the Jewish and Roman world and, like him, bear a cross. He demanded that they confess him where the powers of the world would tell them that they don't belong. But we do belong because Jesus is Lord of all. And if they demand that we be still, we will obey God rather than man. And if need be, we will be willing to suffer and die. So let's hear what Jesus had to say. And here I'm reading John 15, 18 to 21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And that was Jesus' message on the night before he was arrested, condemned to be crucified, in trials before Jewish religious leaders and before Roman magistrates. He said to his followers, you should be expecting to be treated just like me. Life Again, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, has had a profound impact on so many lives. Well, this fall, you can embark on an exciting and encouraging journey as Laugh Again presents our new 31 Days of Hope and Humor devotional, and it's available right now. I know we can all use a reminder of the hope we have in Jesus, along with the words of encouragement that will inspire a smile on your face. Each of us has experienced the unexpected turns of life, perhaps in these last months more than most. Yet, even when life is most challenging, we're assured that our relationship with Christ will sustain us, offer us joy and assurance. So take a moment and request your free copy of Laugh Again's 31 Days of Hope and Humor devotional at backtothebible.ca, laughagain.ca, or give us a call at one 800 663 Before we're in a position to look at the details of the text I've just read, we're well served to ask a very important question. When Jesus said, if the world hates you, we must also ask, who or what is the world? What precisely was Jesus referring to? And so, unless we get that straight, we won't understand. 
I think this to be a very important question because, in truth, not everyone in the world hates the followers of Jesus. Jesus said so in what we've just read. He acknowledges, look at it, it's in verse 20, that some will keep his word. And we read about this when we read through the book of Acts. The first missionary team, Paul and Barnabas, they leave Antioch and their first stop is on the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. Luke, the historian who records this event, says that the Roman proconsul on that island was a man named Sergius Paulus, whom Luke calls a man of intelligence. No doubt he was a good politician and a man who ruled by reason and for the good of the people. You know, after some drama, that is, a drama regarding one of his advisors, after that drama was solved, Luke records that this man, after hearing the gospel from Paul and Barnabas, this man came to believe. So at the outset, it is important for us not to fall prey to the false belief that anyone who belongs to the power structures of this world will hate the gospel. Indeed, we know from contemporary experience, whole countries will be more tolerant to the faith than others. That's just a fact. Notice that Jesus didn't say that the whole world would hate us. Rather, look back at verse 18. He says, if the world hates you. Now, I know that he anticipates it will, but if is a very important word here. And let's get back to the word world. See, I suppose one potential way of translating the word world is to think of the sum total of everyone in the world. See, if all human beings in the world hate us, at least I suppose that's one way we could read this passage. But that's not how Jesus uses the word world. You know, we get a sense of how that word is used in the wider writings of John. I mean, consider the very familiar and well-known John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. See, in that context, the world is the rebellious, sinful, fallen human race. See, in our sin, God looked at us and loved us so much that he gave his only son. So the world can simply refer to fallen humanity that's estranged from God. But let's go further and let's read John 12, 31. It says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That is to say, this world has a ruler who is, of course, Satan. Sinful humanity is influenced and directed and subverted by Satan and his demons, and this forms a demonic spirit. It forms an atmosphere that pervades the human race. It results in a deep underlying hatred of God. And one more text, and this one from 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Yes, says John, you know, who, who remember, he was trained by Jesus. And having been trained by Jesus about the world, John identifies what the world is all about. Three basic things, he says. The desires of the flesh, which often refers to illicit sexual desire. The desires of the eyes refers to everything we want, or might I say everything that money can buy. And the pride of life refers to the the power we can exert over people and things. So what's the world about? It's about money, sex, and power. And in this kind of a world, pervaded by those highly sought-after values, inspired by Satan, And yet people in this system who are still loved by God, well, along comes Jesus. 
and he confronts the world in its sin and offers to rescue them from darkness and death. And then what happens? Well, the world hates him, and eventually the world nails him to the cross. Now, notice again, the world that hates Jesus is not necessarily every human being. The world refers to a system inspired by Satan that has captured the hearts of people, governments, centers of power that hate Jesus, who is the light, come into this dark world. And so Jesus, on the night when he was about to be betrayed, is having a very serious conversation with the eleven. If the world hates me, and they will soon find out just how vitriolic is the hatred of the world for Jesus. Oh, if the world hates me, well, here's the really bad news. They're going to hate you too. Notice verse 18 again. When the world hates you, you need to remember how it hated me. And so what then is the cause of such unbridled hatred? Well, look at verse 19a. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. That is, if you adopted the values of this world, you would escape all the hardship that I've been telling you about. And and by the way, there have, in the history of the church, there have been plenty of examples of just that. I had mentioned the German church in the Nazi era. And there were plenty of pastors, very unlike Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who simply knuckled down and said nothing. They went along, and no one hanged them from a piano wire in the Flossenburg prison. All you had to do was be accommodating enough to make room for the new way of thinking. You know, it's not well known, but before the Nazi era, the German Lutheran Church had a great many converted Jewish pastors. Now, we know that one of them had married Bonhoeffer's twin sister. But in short order, after the Nazis took power, in accommodation to the Nazis, all Jewish pastors were removed from pastoral office. And all who participated in removing them, there was no persecution for them, none at all. And if you're of the world, the world will love you as its own, says Jesus. Even you who confess my name, just love the world on top of me, and the hardship's going to go away. But look at the last part of verse 19. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's the conversion call. Christ chooses us not to be a part of the world, but to be singularly attached to him. He chooses us out of the world. We repent of our sins and we repent of our attachment to those values that the world has. That's the Christian's conversion. Christ chooses us and we renounce our love of the world. Let me get back to that Dutch prime minister I had spoken about earlier, Abraham Kuyper. He lived in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. Remember, he said, Jesus cries out, mine over everything. Listen to what he also said. He said, when principles that run against your deepest convictions begin to win the day, then battle is your calling and peace has become sin. You must, at the price of dearest peace, lay your convictions bare before friend and enemy with all the fire of your faith. Oh my, I would. We had such a clear understanding of things today. You're chosen out of the world, and if you seek to make peace with the world rather than engage the world in warfare, you're siding with the world. Battle is your calling. The very demonic principles of the love of money, the love of sensual pleasure, the love of power are the very values that drive this world. You must do as your Lord and Savior did. 
You're called in love never to make peace with that, but to engage that no matter the price. Now, next we come to a promise. Oh, how we love the promises of God, but I wonder, do we really love this one found in verse 20? Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Let's get practical. Let's start with sex. Sex is God's sacred gift given for two reasons. First, to strengthen the lifelong bond between a husband and a wife. And second, to bring the next generation into this world. Now, if you're of the world, you're going to chafe at what I've just said. You'll say, that's not expansive enough. That's way too narrow. You put strictures around it. Yes, I have. I do because I'm not of this world. Let's go to money and the things that it brings. Money, the gift of using resources, that's God's sacred gift as well. It's to be used for caring for the needs of our family as well as blessing the lives of others and for furthering the advancement of the gospel. Again, too restrictive. And power, oh my, we could say a lot here. But let's go to verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. That's it. They do it because they don't know God and you suffer on account of Christ's name. When you suffer, remember this, when you're hated, you are being treated like your Lord and Savior was treated. You are now acting in solidarity with he who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Find solace in that truth. Thanks, John. John, it seems to me from this passage that that talking about Jesus with others is always going to bring a negative response. Is that true? Or or how should we understand this passage? Yeah, of course, uh, it's not going to be. In fact, I think a lot of people might be surprised to find out how many people whom we know, friends, you know, loved ones, neighbors, um, you know, people that we work with, you know, the list goes on and on. When we talk about Jesus, I mean, they don't respond badly. They respond amazingly well. I think where we find the hatred is among those power structures influenced by Satan himself who is determined that those people who would rejoice in hearing the message should not hear it. So, you know, we hear their hatred comes through uh, strongly and sometimes we, we come to, I think, the wrong conclusion. So yes, we will pay the price from those power structures, but at the same time, we will reap a great reward from those who come to know Christ. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Jesus and His People, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hey, we wanted you to know that there's still time to order our beautiful limited edition, Back to the Bible Canada 2021, Growing in Faith Scripture Calendar. It provides you with words of encouragement, beautiful pictures of creation, and a uniquely designed Bible reading plan by Dr. Neufeld, encouraging all of us to open up our Bibles. Use your calendar as a daily reminder to practice the discipline of reading God's Word. This resource is filled with encouragement, and it's yours for free. There are limited quantities of this free calendar, so reach out today to ensure you get your copy of our 2021 Growing in Faith Scripture Calendar. 
to request your copy today and perhaps give a financial gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.